This is Real Talk with Denver 7 and CPR News. This week, Colorado's Chicano rights movement of the 1960s and 70s was focused on lifting up the voices of the oppressed and marginalized. El Movimiento is still alive and well today through art, music, and stories. Today, we're having a real talk about Colorado's Chicano rights movement, its past, present, and future. Welcome to Real Talk with Denver 7 and CPR News. I'm Colorado Public Radio's Nathan Heffel. And I'm Denver 7's Micah Smith. Each week, in a partnership between Denver 7 and CPR, we'll be having a real talk about issues impacting underrepresented people across Colorado. This week, we're talking about Colorado's Chicano rights movement. Denver was the urban center of the Chicano movement in the 60s and 70s, with well-known protests at Denver's West High School and around the city. But boycotts, protests, and demonstrations took place across the state. With the voices of Mexican-Americans organizing against injustice and reclaiming the power of their cultural roots. But the movement was met with strong resistance, backlash, and even violence. Nearly 50 years ago, Boulder was rocked by two car bombings that killed six supporters of the Chicano cause. The bombing struck fear into the hearts of those connected to the movement. And as Denver 7 reporter Angelica Abaladejo reports, 49 years on, those deaths of Los Ceis de Boulder are still shaping the lives of those living in Colorado today. Nestled at the foot of the Flatirons, tucked between cottages and hiking trails, Boulder's Chautauqua Park is known for its beauty. But this picturesque place was also the scene of an explosion that shook Boulder, killing six and leaving a community in turmoil. Why didn't this get the attention it needed? Why wasn't this investigated appropriately? Why wasn't there resolution? Why? Did things seem to disappear? Why was there not follow-up? A car exploded, and then another. It all happened within 48 hours in May 1974. The bombs took the lives of Niva Romero, Yuna Jacola, Reyes Martinez, Heriberto Terran, Francisco Dorti, and Florencio Granado. Los Seis de Boulder. Federal and local law enforcement agencies investigated, but no one was ever charged. The mystery and the unsolved nature of it um, has a draw, but I think it's much bigger than that. I think it's, it's a reflection of the work that was being done. The young people who died were part of a student movement on the CU Boulder campus, fighting to open the doors to education for Mexican-Americans, also known as Chicanos. A lot of people don't know that Colorado was really a hotbed of Chicano activism, on par with places in Texas and Los Angeles. When the bombs went off. And it was such a traumatic event, and, and as a Chicano community, we still carry that with us. We carry a real desire to to understand that moment in history and because it shaped us and it continues to shape us. Almost 50 years later, family, friends, historians, archivists, and CU Boulder students are finding ways to retell the story and keep the fight for equity alive. Well, we die when we lose our bodies. We also die when people forget of us. When I work with students and I bring this material out to them, being able to touch their own history 
and interact with it in a tangible way it means so much more than when you're looking at something on a computer screen. Boxes filled with newspapers, banners, and handwritten notes tell the story. CU Boulder was one of the epicenters of the Chicano movement in Colorado, which is a really important history uh, that has not until recent years been well documented and well explored. In the years before the bombs went off, the student group known as UMAS, United Mexican American Students, was protesting and occupying campus buildings to demand financial aid and higher enrollment of Chicanos. The community now sees the six who died as what they call symbols of resistance. Those symbols of resistance include more than the six who died in the car bombings. A seventh man, Antonio Alcantar, survived but was badly injured. And other Chicano activists also lost their lives to violence in the years before and after. At the History Colorado Center in Denver, those lives and the part they played in shaping the state are on display. It means so much. We have memorialized people who, in their pursuit of justice, were tenacious. Nikki Gonzalez was Colorado's first Latina state historian. She helped put this exhibit together. For later generations to look at these panels and to see you know, leaders from their own community is a great inspiration for continued movements for educational access, equity. But apart from inspiration, the story of Los Seis also reveals the stark reality of discrimination and violence that sought to silence the movement. Los Seis, the two car bombings, really represent a moment when people just kind of became very insular and there was a lot of fear in the community. But that fear and pain hasn't stopped Coloradans from remembering what those activists stood for. Yuna and her friends were very committed to higher education and higher education for everyone. So many of the efforts that my sister and her uh, friends and colleagues were involved in are the efforts that we still need to be involved with today. Reporting from Boulder in Denver, I'm Angelica Albaladejo, Denver 7. That was Nikki Gonzalez, the state's first Latina historian, Megan Friedel, CU Boulder archivist, and Michelle Steinwan, sister of one of the Boulder Six, speaking with Denver 7 reporter Angelica Albaladejo. This is such a powerful story, Micah, and the fact that there is not a lot of history that people know about this, really. I mean, I was there at the Chautauqua, and I was on that spot. And if I didn't know that this had happened, there really is just a very small marker that said this was a thing that was so important to the movement. It kind of makes me upset, and not kind of. It makes me upset, because this is something that all of us should know, whether you're a new resident of Colorado or you've been here for years and years. This should be top of mind, top of the history that we're taught in our state. Right. But I'm, I'm glad that we have journalists like Angelica who are doing this work to make that so. And Angelica Albaladejo joins us now to go deeper into her reporting. Angelica, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I know this is a part of a series, but what drew you to this story? Well, you know, there's a bit of a mystery to what happened because law enforcement investigated and never charged anyone. There was never any resolution and there are very differing perspectives when it comes to telling this story. You know, there are the law enforcement side where, you know, they accused actually the victims of blowing themselves up, whereas the Chicano community in Colorado largely believes that law enforcement may have even been involved, FBI's COINTELPRO surveillance program. And so there are a lot of tensions at play there. And as a reporter who really focuses my work on accountability for 
powerful government agencies, for you know, uplifting communities that are marginalized and often don't have their stories heard. I thought this was definitely a case where there were people trying to re-embrace that history now because it's still relevant to their lives. It's shaped where we are, like Nikki Gonzalez mentioned. Um, and you know, it's just one of those stories that still needs to be re-examined so that we can see what do we know, what don't we know about what happened. And this story is so important to so many, and it is so well known to so many, but on the flip side, so many others don't know this story. Why is that? I think there's a lot of reasons for that. You know, in talking with folks for these stories that I did, they really kept going back to the idea that these bombings, these deadly bombings, were likely aimed at silencing the movement, mm. at scaring people from being so active and pushing for the things that they were pushing for, you know, against discrimination and for more access to education and financial aid. And so I think that that dynamic has made it challenging to tell this story. It's not simple. And I think because of that, you know, there are some teachers, particularly Chicano teachers in Colorado who teach this very well. And there are people from that era of the movement. Um, Priscilla Falcon is one, Juan and Deborah Espinosa are others. And there's so many in the community who have really made it their life's work to ensure that this history is remembered. Yeah. But, you know, without things like the History Colorado exhibit, a lot of us wouldn't know about it. That's how I learned about it. Mm -hmm. wow. mm -hmm. You mentioned the attempt to silence the movement. We see this a lot when it comes to basic human rights and the push to get the rights that you should automatically have. I do want to ask you, though, because this is a part of a series, and you touched on this a little bit. Who else did you talk to, and how have their lives been impacted by this today? You know, I was really grateful to have had the opportunity to speak with family members of some of those who died in these bombings. You know, they are still feeling extreme pain over the loss of their loved ones. And even today, you know, 49 years later, it's hard for them to talk about. But they think it's important to keep that memory alive. And, you know, I spoke as well with current and former CU Boulder students some of what's forgotten in this situation is that you know many of those who died were students at CU Boulder and were really fighting for equal rights there. What, what do they say about the current state of the Chicano movement? Gone are the protests, the demonstrations, it seems, of, of such large size. How is it continuing today? You know, I think the movement hasn't gone away. It just looks different now. Um, you know, like I mentioned, there are a lot of folks from that time who were very active and have stayed active, and they've kept these issues alive. We're still facing discrimination. We're still facing issues with accessing financial aid. And, you know, when it comes to the core issue of their movement parity, the idea that, you know, Colorado's demographics of Chicanos should also reflect the number of students in the schools, um, that's still not a reality for us today. So we might not be seeing the same kind of large scale protests, but there's still protests. And you know, students at CU Boulder made that known when they defended the memorial to preserve the history of the, the Los Seis. Yeah. I know we have to wrap up the interview, but I do want to say Angelica is working on more stories when it comes to this, especially as we approach the 50th anniversary. So if you have ideas, if you have someone she should absolutely talk to, make sure you reach out to Angelica Abaladejo. She is a reporter here at Denver 7. Thank you so much for Thank being you. here. Thank you. That was Denver 7 reporter Angelica Albaladejo.
We're just getting started with this real talk about Colorado's Chicano movement. During the 60s and 70s, murals painted on the sides of buildings helped tell the story of Denver's Latino and Mexican-American community and provided a link to cultural touchpoint. Coming up, we meet a woman who's on a mission to save and preserve those murals across the state and keep the Chicano movement alive. This is Real Talk from Denver 7 and CPR News. Welcome back to Real Talk with Denver 7 and CPR News. I'm Denver 7's Micah Smith. And I'm CPR's Nathan Heffel. Today we're talking about Colorado's Chicano rights movement, its past, present, and future. All across Denver's old Chicano neighborhoods, murals help the community connect to its cultural past as well as its current place in Colorado. But many historical murals have been lost to gentrification and whitewashing, being painted over or destroyed. Now, the race is on to save the few murals that remain. I recently visited La Alma Recreation Center in Denver's La Alma Lincoln Park neighborhood to see efforts to protect one of the city's oldest Chicano murals. Um, my name is Lucha Martinez de Luna. So this mural was painted by Emmanuel Martinez in 1978. Um, what's so significant about this mural and this neighborhood is that really this is where the mural movement began, the contemporary mural movement. Um, what I often call the community mural movement. And what that means is um, these murals were painted in areas where um, what we would call historically marginalized communities lived, but they were actively a part of this, this area, these areas, the park and accessing the pools, but they were very restricted in how they could use the park, how could they could use the pools. There were actually parks in Denver and other parts of Colorado in um, uh, public pool areas where people of color could only swim in the pools the day before a pool was going to be cleaned. So this was going on around this time. So what's so significant about painting a mural in these spaces is they're really taking ownership of these spaces and saying, hey, we're here, we belong. And these murals become historical textbooks for the community because at this time too, um, a lot of the youth during this time in schools, they don't have access to their history. Um, people of color were excluded from American history, even though they played a major role. What I did realize, I was kind of, I, I kind of assumed that I was going to be able to have access to funding almost immediately after this listing happened. And what I realized is the next step is we have to get these murals on the National Register. But until that happens, it's very complicated because we really need to be collaborating and working with the building owners to make sure that they want to protect these murals because the National Register listing, you don't just go to a building owner and say, we're doing this. Right. They, want to be, they have to be on board and we support them and collaborate with them. So that's what's really critical here. And that's what's going to be challenging because a lot of these um, murals are in historically marginalized neighborhoods that right now are being heavily gentrified right. and the property of these buildings and the buildings are worth a lot of money. So if you have a National Register designation on the building, for me it brings a lot more value to the, uh, to the space. Sure. But for them, the building owner, they could demolish the building right. and put one of these apartment buildings that we see all over Denver now. So it it's complicated. So um, last year we got a, a grant from uh, Bonfi Staten right. and with this grant what we've been doing is covering 
uh, we've, I think we've covered over 10 murals now with, uh, we've been putting a protective coating, a mural shield. And what this mural shield does is it helps bring out a lot of the color that has been fading. Yeah. And then it also protects it from the elements a little bit more. But what the plan is, is after we cover these murals with mural shield, we apply for more funding to uh, restore the murals. Yep. And why, why it's so critical that we do this right now um, is because we kind of have time against us. You know, a lot of these uh, muralists, they're already in their 70s, going into their 80s. Oh. And we want them to have the opportunity to restore their mural. Themselves? Themselves. Nathan, I've heard about this movement to save murals, and it is a race against time. What stood out to you most while you were out there? The fact that there are so many of these murals that are being whitewashed. Essentially, as you heard in the story, gentrification is a big thing. And the buildings that these murals are on are worth a lot of money. And is it worth saving the history to the developers who could make a lot more money by raising the building or by, uh, you know, just painting over it and moving on? And that's something that this movement is, is all about, is really saying, developers, we can have both. Right. And save that history. Save the history developers. Yeah. Uh, I'm not the one with the money. Right. But save the history. <laughs> Most in it. And they're so beautiful. And they're so beautiful. And they connect the community to themselves and to the city. So Absolutely. Yeah. Well, we're continuing our real talk about Colorado's Chicano movement. Music also played such an important part for the movement, providing a place to tell stories, lift up voices, and preserve cultural history. And music still has that role in the movement today. Coming up, I speak with the band Los Mocochetes about their Denver roots and their deep passion for social justice and continuing the Chicano movement. This is Real Talk with Denver 7 and CPR News. Welcome back to Real Talk with Denver 7 and CPR News. I'm Denver 7's Micah Smith. And I'm CPR's Nathan Heffel. Today, we're having a real talk on the past, present, and future of Colorado's Chicano movement. In the 1960s and 70s, Denver was the urban center for the movement, with well-known demonstrations, including at Denver's West High School. But across the state, the movement took hold with boycotts and protests focused on social justice as well as cultural acceptance. So where does the movement stand today? I visited with Denver Chicano band Los Mocochetes to find out. Well, I mean, it started off uh, through being involved in various communities. Hoser was working at Su Teatro, Joshua was working at Youth on Record, and at the time, I was really hanging out and I started a band with my, my, our good friends, our bass player, Diego Flores. He started working at Youth on Record shortly after that. We started con connecting with Joshua Abeda, and we eventually went down to New Mexico, finding out that our families are from there. While we're down there, digging ditches, cleaning out the acequias, which is a yearly maintenance thing that most uh, like New Mexico rural communities do because everybody still has their water rights, we find out through my grandpa that we're cousins. <laughs> yeah. It was pretty cool. We're like there eating some dinner after a long days of work and he's eating his chile con frijoles and he like, you know, asks, wait, who's your grandpa? And he says, oh, his name is Felique Martinez. He stops eating his food. He <laughs> stops cold. He looks over at him and you can see him starting to tear up, finding out that, uh, that my grandpa was there with his grandfather on, their, on his deathbed. And he hadn't really thought about his grand, my his grandfather that much, but uh, it took us back. And ever since then, it was like, 
well, we're doing this. It's starting like that. I guess we're a band now. <laughs> <laughs> so cool. Has music always been a part of your lives, your families, or is this something that you picked up later in life? I feel like uh, I feel like all communities grew up around music, whether it was like, you know, in church. I played in the rondalla as a kid. We all, like I know that Joshua played as a young kid as well. My uncle taught me. Hoser was in theater, but always a singer at heart. His dad has a bunch of instruments that we would actually go and rehearse on. Oftentimes, it was pretty cool. I think we all grew up with it, you know? This episode, we're talking about the Chicano social justice movement. Uh, does your music help spread the message of the movement, and how? Yeah, we call it revolutionary music you could dance to. Um, and it's interesting because we've been booked by well-meaning folks who want to have some Latin flavor for their event, um, but haven't really listened to the music. And when they hear it, and none of it's like bashing in any kind of way, it's meant to be uplifting. But um, we've had a couple of people not realize what they were getting. Uh, and um, But it is really the primary goal of our, of our music. The vehicle is meant to uh, bring communities together, meant to address the, um, you know, the things in our history that are, are difficult. I'm originally from Texas. When I first came here, I thought this was going to be a completely different place. And I was shocked to see that, that there's so many uh, Chicano folks here or folks who identify with that term. Um, and I think that the world needs to see that part as well, right? This is not just like a hipster town where like cannabis kind of brought all these different folks from California over. I know that you've surprised a few people with your performances. Uh, they didn't quite know what they were getting, but what do you hope that your listeners take away when you're performing? What do you hope they take away from that performance? Well, I think one of the biggest like ideas for me is because we've been through a 400 plus year struggle since Columbus landed here and and some of those problems persist to this day through gentrification through you know uh, housing inequality there's so many ways which which white supremacy still pervades into our society um, living with joy and reclaiming your joy and keeping your joy is is huge and I think if we can inspire people to leave feeling good, but knowing that there's still work to be done, if those two concepts can happen, then I think we, we, we've had a successful performance. They can't take your smile. And that's this week's episode of Real Talk with Denver 7 and CPR News. Every week, we'll be having a real talk on issues that impact Coloradans who are often overlooked. You can find all of our shows on denver7.com slash realtalk or at cpr.org slash realtalk. Have a great day.